Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope de Gamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Professor DeGamowitz, good to see you. So, how did you like that last story, oldish woman, something, something? Tasty, right? Nice and filling. I have to admit that I did enjoy it, though it was a bit high in carbs. Feel like I need something with more, I don't know, fiber? Well, I am just the thing. I know you'll love it. Romance, intrigue, horror, and very aesthetic. Tempting. Hmm. I love a good art piece with my kale. And how much is this going to cost me? I mean, the department. For you? A bargain. Hot off the press. Straight out of the oven and fresh from the garden. 500000 Right. How about 75 cents? What? <clears throat> I know a tough customer when I see her. 250000 $3.75. And I'll throw in a bottle of your favorite juice. $22,500 and a bottle of cider. Sixty-three bucks, cider, and a pretzel. Two hundred and fifty dollars, cider, pretzel, and a bouquet of carnations. One thirty-five, sixty-five, cider, pretzel, flowers, and a recommendation on Yelp. You drive a hard bargain, Professor. It's a deal. Here's the story, as tasty as can be. Ah, uh, thank you, Mr. King, and please submit a voucher to the department. The other stuff I'll send to your office. Oh, unleashed beauty. Extraordinarily delicious. Unleashed Beauty by Nancy Hightower. Forty miles south of Las Vegas lies a vast depression of sand and scrub brush called the Pit. Not quite a valley nor any of the surrounding stone outcrops count as true mesas. It will turn into a landfill soon enough. For now, there's nothing but stone, dirt, and sky, and the cavernous trenches created by excavation equipment. We've been here three weeks, and in two more, we'll be gone. Then the reporters will come to gape with awe at what earth and art will show them. Mr. Bianchi, one of the foremen runs up to me, sweat beating on his broad forehead and dripping freely down his cheeks. He mops his brow and tries to catch his breath, then shouts about the din of the bobcats and excavators. We've hit something. One more swipe of the brow with his shirt sleeve. We're not sure. I shake my head before he finishes. Clear the rocks and keep going. Only half of the trenches have been dug out, and I have yet to finalize the color of the dye to be poured in. 
The past four days of mixing different pigments produced no satiating result, but the deadline for my earthwork, beauty, is drawing to close. I would have to find the right color tonight. Alessandro, my wife waits at me excitedly. Come and see. She shouts something else, but is lost among the hums and the rumble of heavy machinery. One more look at the foreman, who merely shrugs his shoulder, and I hurry over to my wife. It really is the most extraordinary thing. She grabs my arm and ushers me to the A-trench, where the group of workers have gathered around the edge. They part for us as my wife leads me by the hand down the slope of the trench to where our young intern is standing over a puddle. Did we strike a pipe? The question brings up a hundred different fears. Chemical spill? Sewage leak? Gas line? What hell have I accidentally unleashed? But it isn't any of these things. For my intern, a 23-year-old bundle of impetuosity has already scooped up some of the goo in her hand. And it really is goo. An oozy, iridescent red that drips between her fingers. Primordial nectar. Put that down and wash your hands, I said sternly. Even while my lust is ignited. For the substance holds the color I have been searching for this past few days. And here it is, bubbling up from the sandy clay. My wife leans in close, smelling of honey and lemon. That's our beauty, love, she says, and gives my arm a squeeze. I nod to the intern's delight. With a fluid motion, she flings the red mire from her hand before sprinting away for a bucket. I signal for the workers to go back to their digging. We must stay on schedule. It ends up taking two days for me to find the right tint and consistency. I learn that adding a little ooze to the water changes its thickness till it finally has a solidity to it. The men are almost done digging up the letters. Now all I have to do is fill them with the effervescing gelatin. The deep cranberry color swirls and shimmers with only the slightest touch of my finger. As a land artist, I could ask for no greater gift than this. No muse could have shown me such a vision. The workers have all promised to be quiet concerning what we found. There is only a bucket full of it, no more. Nor have they encountered any underground pipe or reservoir to explain it. I sent off the sample to a factory a day's drive away, and within a week, the bins are delivered and duly poured into the trenches. My wife and I go out to view the work at dusk, with the vermilion sky shading twilight over the desert. Beauty is 100 feet across, and in the light of sunset, the letters look blood red, blood beauty. I think and hope people will hear the warning cries when they come to gawk at the travesty I committed. My wife leans in and kisses my cheek. Stop it, she says, 
knowing full well how my inner critic talks to me. Back at the studio, I finally show her a few of my new paintings. They are still too abstract. She understands my hesitation, my nervous shuffling. She goes up to one particular canvas and peers closely at the red. You use some of the dye. I reach out and take a soft swipe at the paint. A smear comes off on my finger. It stays wet, I say, still amazed at it. For some reason, then I touch the tint to her lips, make them bright sherry red, just as they were when we were young, and love was all caresses and smiles. <laughs> her mouth registers surprise as it parts halfway in an open O. But then she gently licks my finger. Don't! I, I try to pull back. It, it might be toxic. It's sweet, she says, smacking her lips before completely engulfing my finger in her mouth. Her tongue swirls, tasting flesh and the strange viscosity of the organic paint. It is pleasure beyond anything I've experienced to watch beauty devour itself. When she's done, her eyes move from me to the other two canvases. I have set aside. Is that all you will paint tonight? One hand reaches for my palette, while the other begins to abutton her blouse. No. Will you take off your dress and sell it to me? It is the first time we've made love this summer with such abandon. Forgetting the stress of deadlines and grants, the pressures of New York and L.A. After that, it is a deep sleep filled with dreams of waterfalls that roar white frothy sheets into a whirlpool below. There is someone down there, drowning, flailing their arms in the water. It is only upon a Second look that I discover it to be me. Feel the terror. Or perhaps it is the ecstasy of being swept up and under such joyous torrents. With a start, I am jerked out of my dream into wakefulness, not by my own volition, for I want to remain in that beautiful nightmare. My pajamas are drenched with sweat. Love? It is a mere whisper as I reach over for my wife and feel only bones. At least, that is what my brain registers first. The sticky ooze that covers her skeleton is only understood later. After I stare at it long enough to realize, it's not blood. Her bones glisten with the cranberry iridescence of the congealed paint. It must have reacted to my wife's chemistry, devoured her like acid from the inside out. I wrap my wife up in her sheets, still stained with love and sweat, and have it sent to the Whitney. Call it grief, I tell them. 
There is an inquiry that overshadows the opening day of my earthwork while drawing in more spectators than any anticipated. The hotels of Sin City have all filled up to see the crazy artist who killed his wife and made a new biological weapon. But I am cleared of both charges within a month and moved back to my studio in the middle of the desert. My intern comes with me. Make sure that I eat at least once a day. I sit in a room of half-finished work and weep. One evening, my intern barges in after I have told her to leave me alone for the night. You must forget her, she warns, and pulls out one of the canvases. It's time to work. Her dress slides off with the last three words. That night, I make a slathered red mess with splashes of dark purple and onyx. Chaos and beauty. I'm able to do four more paintings in the following week, full of violent brush strokes, texture crevices. My intern grows more beautiful with hunted eyes. She no longer feeds me, and we both grow too thin. White Cube and the Tate ask for a few works. Curators continue to flock to beauty and gaze, although another one of my assistants reports that the dye seems to be expanding rather than receding. It plays with the eye, that color, he said. He sounded exhausted, like we all were. Get some sleep and have it measured in the morning, I had suggested, more for his sense of comfort than mine. I do not care if the whole mess bubbles up to cover my creation. Or is it my sin? The phone rings in the dead of night. It is one of the museum people, telling me in a shaking voice that the installation with my wife has been tampered with. Vandalism? No, the woman says. Your wife's bones. A sudden lurch in my heart. They've been wiped clean. I hang up the phone and try to calm my breathing. My legs can move, at least not until the sound of moaning from my intern's room suddenly forces the blood to pump them over the edge of the bed. I run down the hall and barge through the door before thinking that I have no weapon in my hand to defend us from any intruder. But the only intruder there is us. My intern is lying in her bed, fully awake, covered in life. The red Ooze has already dissolved most of her skin, showing the delicate strands of muscle and bone underneath. Such grotesque delicacy I have never seen. Neither can I tell whether she moans in pleasure or pain, for she smiles even as tears run down her cheeks. I start toward her. It must have been from the studio, I tell myself, although this is impossible. There were no microbes in the globular sample we sent to the scientists. Nothing living. Go to, to beauty, she gurgles, and I see that the slime has made its way into her mouth. There is nothing left to do but flee. It's only a two-hour drive to the pit, but there's no cell phone reception on this stretch of the highway. I mentally go through the list of all the museums that carry my recent work, and with growing horror, or is it joy, 
Realize that at least 10 places overseas have acquired pieces, including Berlin and Paris. The museum curator who called about my wife's bones must have already notified the proper authorities. But they would be looking for the wrong perpetrator, and there was no time to warn them. When I arrive on site, my gaze automatically scans the horizon until I, at last, spot a writhing mass heading in the direction of Las Vegas. I don't know whether to cheer to cry as I fall to my knees in front of the earthwork, my creation, my beauty, the letters now only filled with moonlight and shadow. Nancy Hightower has been published in Joyland, Volume 1, Brooklyn, Sundog Lit, Word Riot, Story South, Gargoyle, and Cleaver, and has written about politics and religion for HuffPost. From 2014 to 16, she reviewed science fiction and fantasy for the Washington Post. She is the author of Elementary Rising, by Pink Narcissus Press 2013 and The Alphalite, which is poetry by Port Yonder Press 2015. She teaches at Hunter College and is working on a book about digital storytelling with Paul D. Miller for Duke University Press, as well as a memoir about growing up in the evangelical South. Jose Fabus's credits include the short film Not Guilty, for which the award for Best Actor was honored at the My Final Shot Production Film Festival. Other films include Attempted Burglary, Plurality, and Chicago Bariqua. Television credits include The Path, Blind Spot, Law and Order, Law and Order Criminal Intent, and the web series East Willie B. His off-off-Broadway credits include O-Rex with the GF Company, the Deep Run at PRTT, and Acts of Mercy, written by Michael John Garces at the Rattlestick Theater. Regional credits include Anna in the Tropics at the Portland Center Stage, Williamstown Theater at the Hartford Stage Company. You can contact him at jlfebus at hotmail.com. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 was brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, A2 Greenblatt, Sydney Amana, and Joe Ledzinski. So, we're looking to restabilize the multiverse and keep these stories from ripping our reality apart. And this machine helps us do it? Yes, it should be quite large. What I could do with a faucet that controls the flow of stories. Oh, the machine is far more powerful than that. It is, essentially, the multiverse's thermostat. Natural law can be tweaked, adjusted, and changed using the machine, but in our case, it's just an errant fuse box that needs to be reset. Change the natural law, you say? I could be much more than a provost with something like that. (laughs) (laughs) You're so funny, Brad. Oh, I think we found something. 
It's a story. My god. Is it covered in... Is that blood? If I controlled natural law, I wouldn't be afraid of blood. I could turn blood into... Champagne! Now the machine must be closed. It's blood, all right. The story is dripping in it. It looks like a Mike Allen. <laughs> this is going to be good. <laughs> the Blessed Days by Mike Allen Brian woke that morning drenched in blood from toe to scalp, just as he had every morning for two and a half years. But this time, scraps of images swirled in his fogged brain. A hurricane rush of faces, a sense of squirming, worms under pressure. Dreaming. He could remember the dream. His heart started to pound. He had to tell Dr. Patel about his breakthrough. He groped for the towel dispenser, wiped off his hands, his feet, and sat up. The plastic sheet covering his body crackled as he peeled it away from his blood-sticky skin. Beside him, Regina stirred. He'd almost forgotten she was there. He turned, afraid he'd woken her. But no, she was still sound asleep. She fidgeted, eyes moving under their lids perhaps in muted reaction to a dream of her own, one she'd never remember. She lay naked between plastic sheets, just as he had, slats of moonlight groping through the blinds to stripe her contours, long, curvy torso and short legs, and at that moment, the blessings touched her. Her flesh turned ink black beneath the sheet as blood welled from every pore of her skin, when she finally woke, she'd be covered head to toe, just as he was. Brian felt no revulsion, only sorrow. Every human on the planet endured this now, whenever they slept, whenever they woke. For the longest time, Brian had resisted that word. Blessings. Whenever he spoke of the bloody awakenings. Amazing how fast the word caught on once it started happening. Once... Every single human on the planet would rouse from sleep to find every inch of skin slick with blood. Infernal logic reinforced it. Bless derived from Old English roots that meant mark with blood. But Brian knew it was just euphemism, a way to render the grotesque palatable. He had resisted until prolonged exposure to the usage made him unable to define the phenomenon with any other word. In the shower, watching the blood sluice down the drain, snippets from his dream returned, resonating with the pink swirl of water. He had made progress last night. He had to call Dr. Patel as soon as the hour was reasonable. He wiped condensation from the mirror and met his reflection's eyes. Behind his temples, the sides of his bare head bulged. He knew his skull's proportions were wrong for a shaved head, and envied other men whose looks were enhanced by baldness. But he had no choice. The blessings rendered a full head of hair utterly impractical. Even some women had caved, though most had adopted tricks to keep their treasured coifs sanitary. 
Regina was one who climbed out of bed at ungodly hours to scour the blood from her roots. This was how Brian knew it was too early to call the professor without having to glance at a clock. He resolved to use the time for an early morning jog, donned sweats and shoes, and snuck out. Halfway up the stairs to the parking lot, he stopped short. A derelict lay curled in fetal position on the landing. If it weren't for the wet rasp of the man's breathing, Brian might have thought him dead. Unwashed for weeks, the accumulated residue from the blessings masked the man's features in a gruesome black crust. As Brian stepped around him, the bum's eyes opened, twin ovals of bloodshot pink in the scab of his face. On the first day of the blessings, billions woke up screaming. Every human on the planet had emerged from sleep, looking as if they'd crawled from a blood-filled tub. This happened to newborns and elderly, tribesmen and movie stars, prisoners and dictators, soldiers and presidents. On that morning, two and a half years ago, Brian jerked awake as Regina shrieked in his ear. He and Regina first met at the fitness club downtown. He worked as a reporter for the smaller of the city's two metro papers. She worked at a bank branch only a block away. At their first conversation, he had felt a fierce attraction to her. Dark hair with exotic blonde streaks, green almond eyes, quirky lopsided grin. A head shorter than him, but not at all short on curves. He found everything she said fascinating, and she appreciated and reciprocated. Within two weeks, they became intimate. At four weeks out, the night before the blessings, they were still in the giddy exploratory stages. Her olive skin fascinated him. It tasted oddly sour and salty. He wasn't sure if he liked the flavor, but took every opportunity to reevaluate the taste. They fell asleep on her sofa that night, limbs tangled together, neither the least bit concerned about personal space. She woke first and screamed at the sight of his blood-covered face. He had practically leapt from the sofa, and seeing her dripping with abattoir residue, revulsion struck ahead of thought, and he shoved her away so that she fell onto the glass coffee table, which shattered beneath her. Miraculously, she wasn't cut, although at first it had been impossible to tell. Once they were clean, once it became clear the blood came from neither of them, once the television news showed them that something had gone wrong, not just in Regina's living room, but all over the world, then their panic changed, and to each other they could be civil, even tender. He apologized repeatedly, and she told him she accepted. But seeing each other, feeling each other's skin that way, overwhelmed their fledgling attraction, almost severed it. Neither wanted to touch the other, not then. Not for weeks. Not for months. That morning, Brian's profession had meant that he couldn't stay home, couldn't recover from his freakout. He had to get to his cubicle, man the phones, conduct interviews, shove aside his own confusion and despair, and charge ahead. Write something to help the paper's readership make sense of things, or at least understand they weren't alone. He had endured this before, when the Twin Towers collapsed, and closer to home when a crazed gunman killed 30 innocent young students at Brian's alma mater. But this was worse. Far worse. 
Too agitated to stay put in his chair, he hadn't noticed the blinker for new voicemail till after he finished his first interview. An insincere message of all is under control from the city's audibly frightened director of public safety. The voicemail came from Sukraj Patel, sleep specialist, his odd friend of more than five years. It happens in your sleep, Brian, and only in your sleep. You have to come down and see what we recorded. You have to get here. The usually unperturbable professor so rushed his Indian-based baritone that Brian couldn't make out many of the words, and he had no time then to replay it. His editors were determined to print a special edition by noon, and it was proving damn near impossible to reach anyone by landline. The phenomenon started in the Americas, and news of it traveled the world with the dawn. It wasn't until a few days later that sufficient information pooled to show that the blessings truly began everywhere on the planet at once. In San Francisco at 2 a.m., a security guard woke from a forbidden nap and raised his red, glistening hands to the light above his desk. His befuddled mind gradually registered that his entire uniform was soaked dark. In Brasilia at 8 a.m., a boy who had spent the night sleeping beneath cardboard under a bridge scrambled out of his refuge, holding out his blood-covered arms and crying, Murdu! Murdu! In Kabul at 2.30 p.m., a young mother singing a lullaby over her baby's crib stopped with a shriek of horror as red beads welled from every pore of her sleeping daughter's skin. Five days later, in Sukraj Patel's office, Brian watched a video on the professor's paper-flat computer monitor. The footage was of himself, lying face-up in a laboratory bed, electrodes pasted to his shaved scalp. He watched himself drift off to sleep, watched the blood well up, watched as he endured what everyone endured every time they slept, because the blessings didn't stop with that first day. They never stopped. Brian and Patel met over their common interest in dreams. For Patel, they were a subject of research. For Brian, a lifelong battleground. Cursed since infancy with an overactive imagination, Brian's dreams spiraled into terror in the wake of a handful of Poe stories read aloud by his third-grade teacher. None of his classmates seemed fazed by the black cat or the telltale heart. But the stories left Brian deeply disturbed, unlocked nightmares, even night terrors, mist leaking from the light fixture above his bed that gelled into an eyeless old man, spidery legs long as tree branches that groped from closet shadows, dark dream alleys where he ran from people tugged by puppet strings formed from their very own arteries and veins. His ordeals didn't end for years. A nightlight did no good. Some nights he became so terrified he'd pee into his smoky bare sheets rather than risk the walk to the bathroom. With escalating impatience, his parents told him to keep focusing his mind on Jesus. At first he lied and claimed it worked. But after yet another bedwetting episode, his enraged father shook the truth out of him. What finally saved him, at the not-so-tender age of 14, was a book about lucid dreams he found at the community college library. He followed the recommended exercise out of desperation, repeating until he fell asleep, I will know when I am dreaming. I will remember what I dream. Just as his first encounters with the morbid plunged him into nightmare, his first attempt at lucid dreaming introduced him to unlimited power. 
he again found himself in the city of mazes, pursued by a crowd pulled on fleshy strings. You're all inside my head, he thought, and knew they were. He commanded, stop, and they did, collapsing to the ground as their severed strings thrashed like loose hoses. From then on, he reigned, wizard tyrant in the kingdom of his own skull. At fourteen, Brian had other dreams, much more mundane. Win fame and fortune as a freelance writer, marry a saucy redhead from Ireland, and build her a mansion with his riches. When he met Patel, he had inched toward the first of those goals. The university in the next county had called for volunteers to participate in an experiment meant to test a therapeutic cure for reoccurring nightmares. On learning of this, Brian begged the higher education reporter to let him step in and write a feature story. Once he turned in his profile of the professor, he begged his managing editor for permission to chase a freelance article. Permission granted. Brian signed up for the tests. His face a wide brown square above his white lab coat, Patel approached life and subjects like the coolest of poker players. The professor's perpetually half-lidded eyes rarely hinted at anger or amusement. The rumble of his voice stayed perpetually even-toned. He was by far the most unflappable man Brian had ever met, though he wasn't without a sense of humor. As soon as Brian described his lucid dreaming skills, the professor wished to observe for himself. They performed a simple verification— Patel asked Brian to move his eyes right to left and back again twice every ten seconds while awake within his dreams. Brian found this easy. The EEG graphs recorded during Brian's REM sleep displayed sharp spikes for the paired eye movements, over and over, making his brainwaves appear regular as heartbeats. When he woke, he heard Patel's rumble. For what reason would you hone such a skill? The professor tapped Brian's forehead with a cold finger. Do you keep a harem organized in your head, perhaps, like the crazy man in that Fellini film? Brian kept his voice as flat as the professor's. Wouldn't it be obvious if I did? Silence hung between them. Then Patel's scowl fell away, and Brian had the pleasure of actually hearing the professor's laugh, like a mirthful bellow from a bear. As often happens with writer and source, the two pledged to keep in touch after the article's publication, but didn't until the blessings began, and Brian discovered he could no longer remember dreams, nor could anyone else. It wasn't as if dreams were simply gone, driving a sleep-deprived populace toward madness, but as if something else had supplanted them, an enigma that let people maintain their sanity even as it washed the world in blood. When Brian returned from his jog, pre-dawn light cast the cookie-cutter houses of his neighborhood in dark silhouette. The derelict had left the stairwell. Regina was up. He could hear the shower running when he opened his door. She had already stripped the bloodied sheets from the bed and replaced them with clean ones. He called Sukraj's cell and left a voicemail. His eyes flicked to the bureau by the side of the bed Regina had claimed. Her new pendant dangled there from one of the drawer knobs, an object escaped from a bad dream a red diadem inscribed with a gothic G. Regina had a knack for involving herself in loopy things, 
She believed wholeheartedly in ghosts and nature spirits, paid to take classes in energy manipulation and chakra healing, a trait that Brian at times found exotic, endearing, but now found alarming. Yet he kept his mouth shut, held back when they met for dinner last night, and he noticed the red G glittering in her cleavage. The casual text she sent that started it, How are you doing? Then, I want to see you, caused a pang of longing in his chest that was amplified tenfold by his first glimpse of her beneath the dim lights at Pizarri's. She'd cut her silky brown hair short, adding red highlights. The blue half-jacket adorning her shoulders was the same she'd worn on many lunch dates before the blessings. Even with the lights turned down low, her green eyes shone. They hugged and forced the hostess to wait before escorting them to their table. As Regina took her chair, Brian's eyes eagerly followed her neckline down, only to discover the diadem. The discovery stabbed as if he'd stepped on a nail. The Gaians held that the blood of the so-called blessings washed the human race each morning as a warning from the Earth Spirit. Or, as a sarcastic radio personality once phrased it, Mother Earth's PMS, in response to the many ways modern man had damaged the world. Pollution, strip mining, clear-cutting, bomb testing, oil spilling, on and on. They claimed the blood of the blessings was the blood of the dead, mysteriously regurgitated. Brian knew animal welfare was a big deal for Regina. Brian knew animal welfare was a big deal for Regina, but he couldn't imagine her associated with the dozen red-clad extremists who walked arm in arm toward a military oil refinery, chanting, Our blood will be on your bodies! Our blood will be on your bodies! until the guards were forced to shoot stun grenades. She noticed his grimace. What's wrong? It was hard to bite his tongue, but he managed... nothing. He shook with nerves as he propped open his menu, just thinking about Mom and Dad, which had in a way been true. All sorts of explanations existed for the blessings. Beliefs people wrapped around themselves for shelter against the sheer madness. A so-called psychic had once called Brian at the office to claim the blessings were the result of a bloodthirsty god gorged beyond its limit on those dead from modern warfare. Brian hung up on him. By contrast, a few Christian sects interpreted the blood-drenched mornings as God's desperate attempt to save souls before the end time, a literal attempt to cleanse the people who refused to accept the gift of their Savior's blood. His parents had been among those, further deepening his estrangement. And the irony... The blessings could in fact bring disease if you didn't make the most meticulous efforts at hygiene before and after sleep. His mother and father had both fallen ill. The diagnosis, a new strain of bacterial pneumonia allowed to thrive by a devastated immune system. Visiting their bedsides, listening to the wheeze of their breath, how he wanted to scream, to shake their frail bodies, to call them the fools they were. But he who could believe nothing had no right to tell others what to believe. Gina's hand on his wrist stirred him from his reverie, brought him back to the restaurant. He told her what he had been thinking about, but not what inspired the train of thought. She squeezed his wrist as he spoke, and just listened. Later, in the midst of dinner, fettuccine alfredo for him, eggplant parmesan for her, she asked him what he believed the blessings were. He knew he was on dangerous turf. She was idly fingering her pendant, perhaps thinking of making a point. I don't have an opinion, he said quickly, but much to his own surprise, didn't stop there. I know what they feel like. She tilted her head, a gesture that meant go on, green eyes watchful above her wide cheekbones.
When the Trade Center went down, he said, when I stood there with my co-workers in front of the TV and watched the towers collapse, I'd felt like I'd been stained, like something inside me, spirit, soul, whatever. Like it was the rug these deaths would never wash out of. I think that feeling was there before when, when I used to have to go out to cover spot news, the things I'd see, like when the firefighters couldn't get that old woman out of the house in time or that sorry drunk's body I saw wedged underneath a minivan. But when the towers fell, I, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And each new thing makes it worse. The shootings at the university made it a lot worse. Worse things happen all over the world, she said, gripping her pendant, twirling it. Much worse. Much more often. I know. I'm, I'm not saying anyone should feel sorry for me. He spread his arms. For us, but you asked. To me, that's what the blessings are like. Like the stain I feel, but it, it's real. It's on the outside. It's on everyone. He surprised himself again as his voice cracked. Now it was Regina's turn for judicious silence. She let go her symbol to put both her hands on his. Later, it surprised him more how hungry she was for him. He for her. For the longest time he'd avoided staying over at her place, or vice versa, because of what they would see when they awoke. That terrible memory that hung between them. This time, without saying it, they both resolved to defy that memory. They strove to wear each other out, translating their hunger into action arms clutching each other's thighs as they devoured each other to climax. And again, even later, her pinned beneath him and the sweet pressure of her hips flexing up, him grinding down on her as if he'd meant to obliterate them both. Then his miraculous awakening, with the memory of dreams still fresh as the blood on his skin. Brian stayed near his phone at the office, annoyed by the trite assignment he'd been saddled with, a water main break downtown neurotically cleaning his fingernails with his pocket knife as he willed Patel to call him back. When the professor finally did call, about noon, he broke character for only the second time since Brian had known him. You dreamed? You remember dreaming? That's incredible. Are you sure it's not wishful thinking? I'm certain, Raj. But I don't remember all of it, just flashes, like, like still photography. Well, maybe we can help you get clearer. Brian didn't know better. He would have thought the professor's voice almost sounded devilish. Then, from out of the blue, Patel asked, How much do you know about the Mayans? Hmm. Didn't they throw little girls into pits, or is that the ones that cut the hearts out of enemy warriors? Both. Though more often, enemy warriors had their heads cut off. Well, okay then. Why do you ask? I'm trying to digest a rather exotic set of ideas. I'll tell you all about it tonight. You can come tonight? Of course he could. He phoned Regina at the bank, left a message to let her know. She texted back, You have fun. Love you. When he met Patel outside the university medical center, he was immediately struck by how much older the scientist seemed. His square face sagged as if the skin had loosened from within. But the doctor's gaze had not lost its intensity, nor did he bother with opening pleasantries. I hope for both our sakes your memory is good. This is going to cost me some overtime. Your problem, not mine. Patel regarded Brian's shit-eating grin for a moment before leading him through the glass double doors. The professor didn't crack a smile. I'd be highly skeptical if it were anyone other than you. Skeptical? Come on, Raj, there must be other people dreaming. 
I've heard from others, Patel said as they walked. Most proved to be wastes of time and resources. A few, there may have been something to their claims, but then the labs they couldn't deliver. You give me hope. Queasiness sluiced through Brian's gut and bubbled in his throat. I'm the only one? I can't claim that, but at this moment you're the only one I know of. He pressed the button to summon the elevator. Pagan and Sinoko should be here in an hour. I called them in special for this. Let's go to my office. As they ascended, Patel informed him, We're going to try something a little unusual tonight. Before we'd put you to sleep, I'm going to have you take a small dose of cyacillin. What's that? A devilish smile spread slowly within the bracket of Patel's block-like jaw. Pharmacological active extract of a certain mushroom. Brian coughed. You're kidding me. Ordinarily, I would be, but since you're the first person I know of since the blessing started who claims to remember a dream, whose claim might be credible, that is, the extra barrier breaker seems well warranted. Don't worry, the dosage will be small. I want to make sure you can sleep. You're allowed to do that? The smirk remained. We have a DEA exemption. There's no scandal for you to uncover. Nothing in Patel's office seemed different except for the background image on his flat-screen monitor. The icon-dotted screen displayed two stylized figures drawn in a fashion Brian recognized after a beat as Central American. One figure, standing, dangled a head from his hand. The other, kneeling, had no head. From the stump of the headless warrior's neck sprang snakes in a strange, winding, branching form that seemed to represent a flowering tree. Patel followed Brian's gaze. A Siba tree grows from the blood of the sacrifice, the Mayan tree of life. Brian immediately thought of his father's rants. Sacrifice? So we all start turning into trees? No, at least not any time soon. Patel tapped the screen. This is a souvenir from a phenomenological line of inquiry I and some of the other faculty have delved into, one that wouldn't be popular in certain circles. It has to do with how the Mayans conceived of blood. Blood was the fountain of youth and life. Blood was magical. Blood was the gate used by the powers in the underworld, which, in their fanciful conception, housed a central river and a variety of gods, not to mention a sacrificial basketball court. They used blood to make gates to the underworld? Patel regarded him levelly. No, blood was the gateway. Once it was spilled, it was blood that allowed the underworld to come through into ours. What are you saying? You know as well as I that no one has been able to figure out where this blood comes from. Yet I'm inclined to think it's not coincidence that so much human ceremony regards the spilling of blood as essential to otherworldly transfiguration. The Mayans were especially eager for the power the underworld brought. The literature tells of 10,000 captives slain in a day. He put a hand on his throat. They had yokes that clamped on the necks of sacrifices that cut off blood to the brain. When the sacrifice collapsed, a dagger to the heart, as efficient as any modern slaughterhouse. A nervous laugh escaped Brian's throat. The Mayans understood the blessings? How is that even possible? I'm not saying they understood it. I'm only saying what we're dealing with perhaps isn't new to humanity. Perhaps this phenomenon has ancient roots, and some cultures were more in tune with its principles than others, though if the Mayans were truly onto something, it's hard to glean. Brian contemplated the branches sprouting from the severed neck. 
Great. Now I'm going to dream about all that. Professor Smirk returned. Assuming you do dream at all. Brian found the old routine a comfort. Even the acts of stripping, piling the contents of his pockets on the bedside table, tying on the ridiculous hospital gown. Dr. Patel's assistants did their work quickly. Electrode stuck with adhesive to his bare scalp, the sides of his face, under his chin, on his chest and left leg. A sensor by his nose and mouth to monitor breathing. A belt strapped around his ribs and abdomen to register the movement of his breath. A clip lightly pinching the index finger, tracking oxygen in his blood. At Patel's request, he blinked, took deep breaths, and helped calibrate the equipment. The eye of the camera floated above him. If the drug had taken hold, he couldn't tell. Patel's voice piped in from the control room. Brian, remember the signals. Eyes right to left, twice when I'm dreaming, five times when I'm awake. I'll count seconds if I can. Everything's working, doctor. A woman's voice picked up by the control room mic. Higher pitch than the other. Her name is Pega, Brian thought hazily. His room felt cozy, much like a motel room, but pristine. The black box next to the bed, the one all the electrodes led to, emitted a soothing hum. The amniotic red space behind his closed eyelids faded softly to black. I will know when I am dreaming. I will remember what I dream. I will remember what I dream. empty streets of the city of mazes, with its towers like teeth, the ribs of its arches, doors like sphincters, eaves like cheekbones, gutters like stretched intestines, streets merging and splitting at impossible angles, the corners of buildings deadly as razor blades, his shoes splashed in dark puddles, the sound echoing from vacant storefronts. Seeing this place, this horror from his childhood, badly rattled him. But he knew he dreamed. He counted one, two, three beats. Moved his eyes. Right, left, right, left. Above him, the clouded sky roiled. One, two, three. Right, left, right, left. He heard a heartbeat, presumably his own. Though as he walked, the noise grew louder. Another noise, the sound of something sliding. A snake on its belly? I know that I am dreaming. I will remember what I dream. A thin cord brushed his face, a spider thread. He backed away, flailing. How could he not see this? This glistening red string stretched in front of him. Many of them, twitching like fishing line, reeling something in, dragged through the muck behind him. One, two, three. Right, left. Right, left. He turned. Shapes thrashed behind him. Slimy cocoons drawn forward by the glistening red wires. Were these the marionette people, pulled from the grave of his childhood by some unseen puppeteer to haunt him again? Stop, he thought, and the threads broke. I know that I am dreaming. And then the threads reattached, and the forms slid past him. 
men and women crusted and scabbed, mouths open in silent shrieks. He stepped after them, called stop, as they disappeared into the expanding shadow ahead, where the heartbeat grew louder, louder, louder. Right, left, one, two, three. Something was happening that had never happened when he dreamed this before. The buildings before him caved into a growing sinkhole. Architecture separated. Bricks and mortar sloughed off like corpse skin as a thunderous heartbeat shook the world. The city of his childhood nightmares consumed in a whirlpool, a hurricane pit with a devouring heart for an eye. Brian teetered as the edge of the great hole raced at him, a reversed tsunami that sucked down all it touched. I will remember what I dream. Stop! 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 His command changed nothing. The expanding abyss had its own will. He couldn't control it. Beyond the edge, a new nightmare teemed, worms under pressure at the bottom of a well, slithering over each other in suffocated madness. The hole grew and grew, as fast as he could flee, the things at the bottom boiling at him like lava. Brian screamed in his bed of electrodes as he plummeted into the squirming maelstrom as the underworld swallowed him. The first living man to enter their realm, unwitting, unwilling sacrifice, found no rivers, no castles, no gods. Just the pressure. The pressure. The pressure that crushed his lungs, jellied his stomach, bent and squashed his limbs as the thick red worms swarmed over him. In seconds he was airless, fathoms beneath their mass, the weight of a billion slick serpents pushing against him, thrusting into him. He thrashed and spat helplessly as an eyeless snout forced its way into his mouth, burst his throat from the inside. Brian! Hands shook his shoulders, yanked the electrodes from his head. Cold water in his face, a slap. Harder. Brian sat up, blood-drenched. The blessings dripped from his forehead. The pressure. He couldn't breathe. The pressure. But he could still see the great worms, crawling behind the walls, above the ceiling tile, beneath the floor. He felt them in his veins. Night crawlers bunching and stretching inside the cavities of his body. He had become their dream. And when he knew that, he knew them. A terrible knowledge that bloomed in his brain. Branches of a many-tendrilled tree. They writhed within him these primordial powers that had grown in strength since mankind first awakened to sentience. Phantasmal beasts that gorged on flesh-tearing violence. Mindless creatures, the ignorant spilled offerings to without ever fully understanding the things they fed, misnaming them as gods, massacring thousands in order to feel just a fraction of the sensation electrifying Brian's viscera. The accumulated slaughters of the modern age had swollen these beasts of blood, placed them under such crushing pressure their residue had begun to seep out of the underworld, drip into the land of flesh. They drenched him in their cravings, eager to ride their captive completely out of dream. Their searing hunger coursed in the fluids of his heart, eyes, spine, bled from the pores of his skin. He opened his mouth to tell Raj, 
a scream, a warning. They're dreaming me now, and gurgled as blood sprayed from his throat. Call an ambulance, Patel barked. Sonoko ran to the booth outside as Pega helped the professor lower their charge back onto the bloodied mattress. Brian had an arm around his friend's shoulders, clutching at him like a drowning man clings to driftwood. And yet he couldn't be saved from drowning. Their desires submerged him, flooded all corners of his mind and body. He was the breach in the dam, and having found him, they couldn't force their way through fast enough. No reason motivated them other than the overpowering urge to be born, and he would widen the fracture. He would be the first vessel ruptured open to relieve the pressure, but not the last. Could Patel see how he cried tears of blood? How he was nothing but stigmata from head to toe? I'm sorry, my friend, Patel said. I could not have imagined this would happen. Brian bubbled back. I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry as the worms that ruled his flesh guided his hand, found the pocket knife on the bedside table, brought it to the professor's neck. As Patel stumbled away, life spurting through his fingers, Brian subdued the Iranian assistant, clamped his free hand around Pega's windpipe, squeezed away any possible noise. He didn't know what made Sunoko drop the receiver, the sight of him as he dashed into the lab, compelled by his puppeteers or the view into the sleep room through the one-way glass, where a dark hydra rose from the spreading blood like a monstrous tree and stretched a dozen hungry necks. Brian dragged her into the room by the black cords of her hair, pulled her under the shadow of the beast with many heads and no face, offspring of consciousness and bloodlust, and opened her to it. The reward of the serpent's pleasure rushed through him as it drank. He shuddered, moaned, Millions had died for just a sliver of this. The hydra swelled to fill the room, and he fell to his knees before it, for the first time in his life, awestruck. For the first time in his life, a true believer. The derelict lay curled in the stairwell again, filthy beneath the merciless fluorescent light. Brian showed the man a mercy watched in mute rapture as the black fluid escaped its shabby house of flesh. It swam upward from the exit he made, a tentacle of blood spiraling through the air to join its new master. He had called Regina and left a message as he departed the lab. Stay with me again tonight. I need you. You still have the key? Her answer. Yes, I'll be there. Regina, his love, who could believe without evidence or proof, would surely become his first convert. The first to understand the lesson that the blood-stained feeling he had foolishly agonized over for so long was not a stain at all, but the wondrous sprouting of a long-gestated seed, the birth of a true tree of life, a lord whose existence could not be doubted. The door was unlocked. Eager red tendrils coiled around and around his hand as he turned the knob. His master followed him inside. She watched his approach, wide-eyed and tremulous. Her silence could have been reverence. Nebula Award, Shirley Jackson Award, and World Fantasy Award finalist 
Mike Allen is author of the short story collections Unseeming and The Spider Tapestries and the novel The Black Fire Concerto. He's also the editor and publisher of Mythic Delirium Books, home of Mythic Delirium Magazine and the Clockwork Phoenix Anthologies. He lives in Roanoke, Virginia with his wife and co-editor Anita Allen and two neurotic cats. You can follow his adventures as a writer at DescentIntoLight.com, as a publisher at MythicDelirium.com, and as both on Twitter, at MythicDelirium. Kevin Gilligan is an actor, writer, comedian who has been seen on Spike TV, TV Land, Style Network, Travel Channel, True TV, and Funny or Die. You may have seen him as Kevin the Bisexual on the season premiere of Billy on the Street. He was also in the Vision Fest and Sin Kink award-winning film Broken Side of Time. He has written for Hebe Magazine and Geeks Out and co-hosts the Geeks Out podcast available on iTunes and Libsyn. He produced and co-wrote his acclaimed web series Gigahoes, the first season of which is now on Amazon Prime, the second season to premiere later in 2018. He's performed at UCB, UCB East, The Magnet, Gotham Comedy Club, and The Pit. Find more at www.kevinrissgilligan.com. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 is brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, S.O.A. T'Chalim, Dragon's Roost Press, and Jay Clocker. Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. Degamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want 
but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.